0: Welcome to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi & Company. Welcome to the Tamimi COP Talks podcast series. I'm Kush Bouchardatpuri, a dispute lawyer with Tamimi & Company, where I focus on infrastructure, construction and energy arbitration. Our guest speaker today is Jessica Crow. Jessica is an arbitrator with Arbitra International specializing in energy, natural resources, climate change, the environment, and public international law. She's also an academic researcher at the University of Cambridge Centre for Environment, Energy, and Natural Resource Governance, where she teaches international climate law and investigates the impact of global climate litigation. Jessica, thank you so much for being a part of the session with us today. With COP28 taking place in the UAE this year, we are creating a bank of insightful resources to spotlight the importance of this event and contribute to this conversation. In today's episode, we would like to talk in some detail about environmental disputes, and in particular, the resolution of environmental disputes through arbitration and litigation. Now, traditionally, environmental and climate change disputes have featured as part of the wider discussions around the resolution of ESG, In recent years, however, the bandwidth of these disputes has grown from pure environmental disputes to include disputes over natural or land resources, disputes regarding phasing out of carbon-intensive resources, as well as disputes over renewable energy incentives amongst a host of many others. From your perspective, Jessica, why has climate change, environment and energy transition disputes grown in prominence? And why has it become increasingly material for both private corporations and governments to address this in a more appropriate manner? And what is considered appropriate to begin with? Well, Krishna, I'm going to
1: start by saying thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm I'm really looking forward to discussing this important topic with you, which, you know, as you rightly said in the opening, is of particular relevance to the UAE and in the region with COP28 coming up so quickly. So before jumping right into the deep end, um, because environmental and climate dispute risk can really feel like a boundless topic, I think a little context of the global regulatory environment can help situate the litigants, you know, and the types of disputes that are likely to come up in arbitration and distinguish them in our minds from those that are bound for litigation, private litigation, or before international human rights bodies, for example. So I think a helpful place to start is... You know, just by understanding how the international climate regime works, because regulating greenhouse gases is actually relatively new. It's only evolved like in the past quarter century through treaty making, but also through the development of international environmental law. And so, you know, if we just go back to brass tacks, the climate regime, we have three principal treaties two of which are currently in effect. We have the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was responsible for launching the COP process. We have the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. And we know that the Paris Agreement is the principal treaty um, regulating climate change um, currently, and its overarching objectives are to mitigate greenhouse gases and to limit global warming to two degrees centigrade and to pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5. And it's, we have 196 countries that have acceded to this treaty. It's pretty much near universal accession, and it is common ground that meeting this target is a global priority. So then if we actually look at kind of the technicality, how is this achieved? The way that the the Paris Agreement was structured, the way that the climate regime is structured currently is to have this bottom-up compliance structure, which means that the targets are achieved by each country setting their own commitments to um, greenhouse gas reduction targets through national legislation, through climate and energy policy, for example, by setting their nationally determined contributions um, and then reporting on their progress. But within the treaty structure, there are no penalties or enforcement mechanisms. And this is by design, because they wanted to make sure that the maximum amount of countries would accede to this treaty and that you would have the maximum amount of compliance. But, you know, well, so what that means is that parties have a number of ways in which they can achieve their targets. They can phase out fossil energy. They can introduce um, different types of incentives to... um, incentivize renewable energy investment in renewable energy and technology, and they can introduce different types of mechanisms like taxes to disincentivize heavy emitting behaviors. But while all of that is well and good, we know from the global stocktake this year that there is a significant emissions gap between pledged NDCs and emissions pathways that are consistent with the Paris Agreement, which is that 1.5 degree centigrade kind of net zero future and increasing public concern over this political inertia worldwide is what's really resulted in this rise of strategic climate litigation since 2015, since the Paris Agreement came in, since the Paris Agreement was agreed and in 2016 when it came into force. So what are we talking about when we're talking about strategic climate litigation? This has been defined um, as lawsuits that aim to produce ambitious and systemic impacts that extend beyond the individual case. And these growing number of cases have been brought by NGOs and civil society groups around the world against governments. Um, And they challenge the overall ambition of these domestic commitments under the Paris Agreement and the policies that have been implemented domestically to mitigate climate change. And in a similar vein, we're also starting to see strategic litigation against high emitting corporations. These are the so-called carbon majors. And these cases also seek to compel private companies to start aligning their corporate strategies with the overarching temperature goal of the Paris Agreement. What we're seeing is litigants in both categories of cases are targeting the actors who bear responsibility for contributing to climate harms by relying on a range of domestic legal theories to to support standing, including human and constitutional rights, as well as we're seeing tort of negligence. And this is because litigants actually don't have standing to sue under the Paris Agreement. It's an international treaty. So really only states have standing to sue. And the dispute resolution annex of the Paris Agreement is actually currently being drafted. And so what's interesting is that we're starting to see this litigation have knock-on effects, which is giving rise also to commercial and investment arbitration.
0: So just moving on to the challenges of resolving environmental and climate change disputes through arbitration. With the propensity of environmental and climate change related disputes involving numerous stakeholders. So, we have like NGOs, we have the scientific and um, technical teams of experts, and there's a host of other stakeholders as well. Um, there's also uncertainties and complexities of the ecology and socioeconomic impact behind commercial activities. What do you see as the challenges of resolving such disputes? And the angle where I'm coming at for this question is really um, the role of the technical experts and how do they feature in arbitrating complex environmental and climate change related disputes because inherently the whole topic of climate change while it is also very critical it also involves um, and it goes in tandem in many ways with the scientific research to back it up as well especially when it comes to substantiating the breaches and quantifying damages as well.
1: I think, um, to answer your question, the best way to to start would be to distinguish um, investor state and commercial arbitration. Um, If we start with the investor state category, there have been a lot of headline grabbing cases about fossil fuel investors suing states, for example, for passing more ambitious climate policy or phasing down certain fuels, um, either because they're implementing national greenhouse gas mitigation measures to achieve the Paris Agreement, you know, or as a result of climate litigation where the courts have pretty much been ordered to achieve the same outcome. And these are cases which arise under international investments agreements, like the Energy Charter Treaty, or, for example, the map legacy provisions, and what they're doing is they're really laying bare the tension between um, states' obligations to protect investments for foreign investors and its its right and obligation to regulate in the public interest. You know, particularly for an issue as pressing as climate change. You know, we've also seen investment cases in renewable energy where states that have implemented renewable incentive policies like feed in tariffs or green credits. Um, have been challenged because, uh, you know, something, perhaps some kind of economic instability in the country um, resulted in the state um, either, you know, revoking or, you know, altering these policies. And the investors argued that these policies were necessary for them to turn a profit in, in an industry like renewables, which have such high upfront sunk costs. So when, you know, when you when you are looking at these cases where you have like revocations that are linked to some kind of economic instability or even just inexperience using these type of policy tools in, in the context of renewable energy. Um, you know, I think in, in this in the case of in the case of Spain, which which uh, was a jurisdiction that saw quite a, had seen quite a few of these claims. Um, there was, uh, you know, a failure to anticipate their popularity. I think we saw some issues with market capping participation, and so it was impossible for them to deliver the guaranteed tariffs at the level promised without passing off huge costs to the consumer. And so this is where international, um, you know, the investors have relied upon the investment protections um, available, um, in order to, in order to recoup some of the, the losses that they suffered as a result of the change in the regulatory regime. In the commercial sphere, um, for example, what we see is that disputes can arise also in result of tightening climate policy. And typically, I think what we've seen is about three categories of this. Um, we've seen that there are cases between long-standing commercial partners in traditional industries. You can think of, I think aerospace and the automotive industry are pretty classic examples where Certain technologies like combustion engines are going to be rendered obsolete. So, obsolesion of certain types of technologies. Um, In construction and infrastructure, you can see how the rising cost of carbon for core materials such as steel and cement can place serious pressure on supply chains and they can lead to disputes over who should bear the risk and cost of price fluctuations. Um, and then you can see how the phasing out of coal, oil, and gas will have knock-on effects on commercial relationships between JV partners and EPC contractors, who um, you know are typically reliant on the, uh, on, you know, on the in, on new, new projects and new investments in this industry. And then um, due diligence legislation. Um, this is going to open up new liability for breaches of sustainability for human rights and envi- you know ESG and supply chains and corporate governance claims as well as greenwashing. And so whether this will be an arbitration, um, you know maybe there are issues that are likely to come up in arbitration. Um, certainly they're likely to come up in litigation um, in the first instance.
0: Yeah, and it looks like um it is, but there are obviously different considerations um in the investment sphere and different considerations in the commercial space. But like whether it's economic instability or tariffs in the investor space or whether it's increased cost of carbon and materials in the more commercial disputes domain. I mean, I think ultimately the, the end goal for tribunals is really dealing with the damages, the quantum part of it. And and this is a topic I'm personally very fascinated by, and I've done a number of studies on it. It's really how equipped are our arbitral tribunals currently in dealing with damages, and in particular, the quantum of damages in environment and climate change-related disputes, and really how are tribunals approaching quantum in the current global regulatory environment in light of net zero emission targets, for example, by by governments around the world, and I think you seem best placed to really sort of, you know, guide this discussion, um, given your extensive experience in in this topic.
1: Well, I think this, this question really highlights really well an important underlying issue, which is the fact that, you know, the climate crisis has transformed our relationship to the future. And it's really resulted in considerable uncertainty. And if we think about that in terms of risk, and we know that the industry has now coined this term, transition risk, these risks include not only the possibility of, you know, natural disasters, you know, subjecting assets to physical risks of climate change, but also those associated with regulatory change, including asset stranding, which is, you know, it's been coming at a steady and accelerated pace since 2015. Um, so even if environment, so if we're thinking about the way that these are considered by arbitral tribunals, often, you know these issues are brought up first in the liability phase, but then they also become important considerations at the quantum stage. And so when we're thinking about how to value these assets, you you need, you know you can, there are certain considerations at least in an investor state context, certainly, um, that can be taken into account by tribunals when they're trying to determine whether or not, Um, instruments like the Paris Agreement commitments that states have made under international law um, whether those should be factored into um, evaluation of an um, asset as a going concern or whether it's you know not something that should be factored into a pure economic analysis when we're talking about investment protection and so if we think about this in an investment arbitration context which does benefit from the fact that you know the vienna convention can be called upon to bring in other applicable international law instruments and principles as long as they're applicable between the parties and also in investment arbitration you do have these ongoing obligations of investor diligence to be aware of what the changes are in, in both in a domestic and the global regulatory environment. So then the question, you know, really for a tribunal is how should these transition risks change how we value future project profits? Can the Paris Agreement or can, you know, successive reports from the interpanel, um, sorry, the IPCC um, impact time horizons for valuation? One interesting um, kind of precedent that exists in public international law um, is is a case from the 1970s, and it's the case of SVP in Egypt, and it concerned the development of a tourist complex near the Egyptian pyramids that was canceled by the government because the pyramids had actually been inducted as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, and so this issue became before the tribunal, and the tribunal found that the investment had been expropriated, um, but it held that the environmental considerations under the UNESCO convention were relevant to the determination of the appropriate amount of compensation. And so what they did is they had to look at um, they had to look at the you know the, the timeline horizon for the investment, and they found that future profits were to be reduced from the date that the pyramids became World Heritage Site, because from that time onward, the investment would have been in conflict with the World Heritage Convention and in in violation of international law. And so I think that this case is a really interesting example of how a time horizon for the valuation of an investment as a going concern can be shortened by reference to international legal developments and environmental concerns. And it's a reasoning that can be applied to the valuation of future profits in a climate change context as well. For example, from the date of accession to the Paris Agreement or potentially, you know, a subsequent COP undertaking to achieve a particular emissions pathway or an emissions reduction commitment.
0: I mean, that's just fascinating. And I mean, I hope what we can all do at some point is sort of collate all of these relevant decisions or judgments and and try to, you know, um, get to a point where there's like a a guidebook for tribunals to really follow, because at some point, none of these tribunals that are looking at ESG-related disputes will have this uh, ability to find these solutions, these um, valuation precedence, as you say, or or some sort of um, forecasting methodology. So I think that's really the end goal for all of us now as a community to work towards. But just moving on now to a sort of a different topic, challenges of resolving environmental and climate change disputes through arbitration. Now, with the propensity of environmental and climate change related disputes involving numerous stakeholders... Um, and, and this is something that's characteristic of all ESG disputes in some ways. So it, they include NGOs, other stakeholders, as well as the scientific and technical uncertainties, the complexities of the ecology, socioeconomic impact behind certain investments, behind certain commercial activities. Now, what do you really see as the challenges of resolving such disputes? And what? Um, the, the way that I would sort of try to, the reason why I'm asking these questions, is because the role of technical experts has become somewhat a disputed item in um, ESG-related disputes and how they feature in environmental disputes in particular becomes a lot more prominent and a lot more complete, complicated given the criticality of climate change issues. So I'd be really interested to hear your take on this.
1: Yeah I think you're absolutely right and I think probably the best way to explain this is by way of example and for me the the best example that comes to mind is the current wave of climate tort litigation in the U.S. and this really exemplifies how advances in earth science and climate attribution science combined with novel legal theories under both international and domestic law are really helping to expand climate litigation into new directions and to overcome some of the traditional challenges associated with these claims. So just by way of background, we've, since 2017, there's been this huge wave of climate tort litigation, including by more than seven states' attorneys general across the US against um, this, the carbon majors. And these cases have been held up in procedural battles. battles Um, For years over the appropriate forum, but a Supreme Court decision this year gave them leave leave to proceed at the state level. So we're actually going to see some of these cases go to trial this year. And these cases are really innovative because they combine um, tort, you know, these kind of classic toxic tort claims with statutory fraud and racketeering. And this may sound familiar because they um, are building on these climate accountability cases for corporates worldwide but also the successful use of civil tort fraud claims in other contexts such as tobacco litigation. Um, You know the tobacco litigation also was relying on this combination of tort statutory fraud and racketeering so these kind of complex causal claims Um, and after decades of litigation fighting to hold it accountable um, they actually entered into a master settlement agreement which forced the industry to pay state governments nearly, I think it's 200 billion to compensate for the increased costs um, to the healthcare system caused by tobacco. And it also required the industry to end its disinformation campaign concerning the risks of smoking and to re- restrict future advertising of its products. So these litigation cases, um, these climate suits are trying to achieve a similar outcome. Um, they're alleging historic and ongoing lawful deception, including concealment of knowledge regarding global warming, misrepresentation regarding climate science, and misleading the public with regard to fossil fuel products. And so, this is relying on you know historical evidence developed by academics, journalists, scientists, and other researchers, um, and the evidentiary basis for it continues to expand. But as you can as you can imagine, it's a very kind of complex. Um, it's a very, the elements of this case are very complex and difficult to um, to establish both in terms of standing as well as for the substantive claim. And so what we're seeing um, interestingly, um, because even though for many years, climate change was deemed you know, a collective action problem, it's global, it's diffuse, it's too complicated to render any kind of individual or joint tort fees are responsible, but advances in climate attribution science over the past couple of years have actually been key to overcoming some of these challenges and making it possible to attribute specific climate damages to specific sources of greenhouse gases. Um, And probably the best case that um, uh, exemplifies this is the um, municipalities of Puerto Rico case against Exxon and others, which was filed in November of last year. And effectively, what this case is seeking, Puerto Rico obviously being an island state that was devastated by two hurricanes in 2017, they are bringing a case against the carbon majors, alleging that they were liable for, um, you know, the damages associated with those two hurricanes, um, because they knowingly caused and contributed to the worsening of climate change. And this is a quote: "By producing, promoting, refining, marketing, and selling fossil fuel products that have caused and continue to cause the devastating effects of climate change, while concealing and misrepresenting the dangers associated with the use of fossil fuel products." including the increased frequency of more dangerous storms. And so what we're seeing um, now um, is that in this case, they are relying on um, a study that was conducted by the Climate Accountability Institute. It was called the Carbon Majors Research. It was a seven year inquiry led by the Philippines Human Rights Commission into the responsibility of major corporate emitters for climate change. And the study relied on research attributing the majority of greenhouse gas emissions to the carbon majors. And by pointing to studies evidencing that the defendants were responsible for 40% of global greenhouse gases from 1965 to 2017, they're arguing that these collective emissions were a substantial factor in the increase of the intensity of the 2017 Atlantic hurricane season that caused you know, this apocalyptic damage to the state. And what they're doing is they're relying on you know, these scientific methods to advance tort claims that are premised on complex causal arguments that have been well established in U.S. toxic tort law. And this is similar to how, you know, epidemiological advances in cancer research supported a new wave of claims against the manufacturers of asbestos. The methods are actually quite similar because in climate attribution methods, they rely on statistical models to establish probabilistic causation, which the courts have accepted in this context in place of but for causation. because. But for causation, you know, in very traditional terms, is is you know exceedingly difficult in the climate context. But it's it's you know more plausible that attribution methods can ad- identify a specific defendant's contribution to a climate event, quantified in proportion to its greenhouse gas emissions, which, for carbon majors, um, you know, the likes of whom are uh, listed as defendants in the Puerto Rico case, could be quite substantial. So I think that this is going to be one to watch to to understand the way which tests the courts will adopt for proximate causation for these extreme weather claims?
0: Yeah, so there is, um, on the one hand, the subjectivity of scientific research. And then on the other hand, there's the criticality of climate change, which makes this whole issue all the more complex, apart from the technicalities and apart from the scientific research that goes into it. And, you know, given the complexity that's involved and given, you know, the evidentiary hurdles that need to be crossed, There's obviously an advantage of litigating these disputes because it just makes it visible, because it means that governments can, in a way, intervene with a lot more uh, flexibility as opposed to arbitration. But um, there's obviously other benefits of um, uh, arbitration that may or may not be suited. But if you just go down to arbitrating these disputes, whether they're related to the investments or whether they're related to the, the whole commercial sphere, what are some of the key benefits you can think of for disputing parties or for general communities, for the governments in trying to arbitrate environment and climate change related disputes? And is there a space then for attempting amicable settlements in the process? And if so, what's your take on the optimal time for this whole process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, there are going to be certain cases that are bound for litigation because they're seeking a certain precedent. Um, and once that precedent has been established, that's likely when we're going to start seeing these claims arise in private arbitration. Um, and private arbitration, particularly for commercial arbitration, has a lot of you know unique advantages. Um, It's, you know, very well suited to complex international disputes where the perceptions of a neutral forum, the rules and the governing law are really important for international parties, you know, as well as the ability to select arbitrators that have sectoral expertise or, you know, expertise in energy, climate and environmental law. They're going to be attuned to the sensitive balance that needs to be struck between economic rights and environmental protection. They're going to understand the industry. Um, and, And if you also, if you think about it, many of the traditional uses of arbitration um, you know, energy, construction, infrastructure, and, you know, financial institutions that finance them um, are going to be the first in line to feel the bite of the tightening international and domestic climate litigations as the greenhouse gas mitigation targets become more ambitious. Um, and so this is going to have a knock-on effect on relationships, you know, across the value chain, which which may already have an arbitration agreement in place. Um, and if it doesn't, um, these may be parties that already have Comfort and familiarity with arbitration and, and may may be, um, you know, inclined to select it um, and this is because of the fact, you know, that arbitration rules. They're inherently flexible. They provide certain procedural advantages. Um, many of the institutional rules now have mechanisms that allow parties to accelerate the timeline or fast track issues that may be decisive to achieving. A resolution, and you can see how that would be particularly attractive in the context of commercial, you know, climate disputes I and mean, even investment disputes, where parties may be in conflict over, you know, a carbon-intensive resource or technology that's facing obsolescence, and they would rather come to a quick, a quick resolution of their differences so that they can continue their commercial relationship and, you know, perhaps restructure it in a way that's viable for the green economy going forward. Um, and then, uh, just to answer your question quickly about um, about, about settlements, you know, there's certainly space for, for amicable settlements, which should be encouraged early and often, especially in this critical space. And I think, um, you know, by way of example, what we're seeing in the ISDS context is that several institutions are actively engaging in developing their own mediation rules to, to, to try and tackle ISDS more effectively. And we've seen, for example, the Energy Charter Secretariat and ICSID have both developed a model framework for the adoption of mediation. And it provides an internal structure which authorizes state officials to mediate and settle disputes within a state sanctioned framework. Um, and to remedy the fact that there are very few you know, bilateral and multilateral investment treaties that actually contain a mediation clause, the ICSID rules are, um, what what they've done is they've made it applicable to mediation and they can be invoked by um, treaty application or by either party's invitation even if neither party is, even if neither party is also party to the exit convention. And so I think this is a good example of how arbitral institutions and practitioners are increasingly alive to the role that they have to play um, to help accelerate the energy transition. And you know, having recourse to the extended toolbox available outside of traditional and lengthy dispute resolution proceedings can be one of the ways in which lawyers can help clients and be part of the solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, to me, flexibility in the arbitration process just makes it so well-suited for climate change-related disputes because the procedural timetable could allow for, for example, early engagement of the experts, which could then provide the opposite interval for amicable settlement. Ultimately, disputing parties may not even have a sense of how um, devastating some of the investments they're doing. And when they have this sort of... um, early reports and early determination by the experts. I think that just provides um an incentive for settlement very early on. So for me, I, I agree with you. Right? I just think um arbitration could be the way forward as long as there could be a way that a lot of these decisions and judgments are being extracted and are being, um, in a way, documented and archived, even without the party's name. That gives, again, tribunals the, the platform to then go back into jurisprudence to help them in deciding such disputes going forward. Um, And I I think with that, you know, Jessica, thank you so much for, for your time. And this has been such a great discussion. And for those who have tuned in, I thank you for joining us in today's sessions. We hope you found Jessica and my discussion insightful and interesting. And if there's any area of the conversation that you would like to discuss or do you want more information on, please do get in touch with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to COP Talks a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamunium Company.